Uh, All right, open your Bible with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 10. (laughs) The Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 10 this morning. Um, Give a minute for the kids to go out. We're about halfway through right now uh, this section in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where the Apostle Paul takes a detour. He uh, he, he he pauses from the, the wonderful stuff that he's been saying. He'll re-engage in chapter 12, verse 1. But here in this section, he's talking about his countrymen, the burden, the great burden that he had for Israel, for the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Messiah, who continued to reject Messiah, who continued to cause him no small amount of trouble personally, but uh, we've looked at his heart in this, is that he wasn't looking at the trouble that they were causing him. He was looking at the fact that they were going down the wrong road as he had in his own life prior to his conversion, which we looked at last week on that road to Damascus when uh, knocked to the ground by the bright light and all that we looked at last week. So he has a burden and we've seen the origin of this burden. If you remember there in Acts chapter 9, he goes into Damascus and, and uh, the guy lays hands on him and he receives his sight and scales fall from his eyes. And, and he was there for a few days and he immediately began to go to the synagogues to preach to the Jews, to share this wonderful news that uh, he had been resisting, evidently, kicking against the goats, the news of the gospel of Christ. Very important that we understand that that was primary on his heart. He was called to bring the gospel to kings, the Gentiles, and to Israel, to the Jews. So he starts right in because I believe, personally, I I just believe that he had a huge conviction about how wrong he had gotten things and that he immediately set out to get people to see things rightly as he had seen himself. So uh, we looked at the fact that uh, he, he'd been in their place. He had been the one who had stumbled, tripped over Christ. Uh, and, and the Jews, even now, were stumbling over Jesus being God's choice for Messiah. Uh, the, the method of salvation that God had employed no longer would it be to uh, a group, to Israel, and be extended to the Gentiles, but it would be to a group of individuals, to any who would come. We're going to look at that this morning. Whosoever would come. So, In chapter 10, the apostle continues. He starts to do a deep dive into the Old Testament, and he's pulling out one passage after another after another because he wants to demonstrate biblical relevance to the things that he's making claims of. And folks, that's not a bad thing to do. We want to make sure that we're not giving people our opinions, that whatever we speak when we're speaking in spiritual terms is based in the word of God. We'll look at that more as we go along. Uh, What he's saying, though, is that God's intentions all along had been uh, to provide a way for man to come into it, to relate to him, not on the basis of man's works, but solely on God's grace, on his grace. Last week, we looked at a couple of really important characteristics with regard to salvation. The first being, salvation is not far away. The second being, it's not difficult. God has made it so easy. It is so simple that often people miss it because they're looking for complexity. They're looking for deep mystery and all of that. And yeah, the gospel is a mystery to those who don't believe. 
But the moment that you do, that spiritual discernment, that, that door is opened into understanding the deep things of God. So we also talked about, and, and one of the things I believe is a premise to Paul doing this deep dive into the Old Testament, going all over. He's going into Isaiah, he's going into the Psalms and all, and to Deuteronomy here is because over the years, over the decades now, since he had had that experience on the Damascus Road, he had had a lot of conversations with people. He had been to a lot of synagogues. He'd been run out of a number of them. Uh, <laughs> he'd been chased down. I mean, the Jews were so adamantly against him that they literally followed him and tried to trip him up. They, they would hatch murder plots against him. They did not like what he was doing. So as he had been going about the empire over these years, going to one synagogue after another, he had had a lot of discussions. And I believe that part of what we're seeing here in chapter 10 is sort of a summary of the discussions that he'd had, of answering the questions that he knew the Jews had because he was a Jew, as well as a Gentile, dual dual citizenship. Uh, Don't need to get into that. But the point is the rapid fire nature of this chapter's multiple references and applications from the Old Testament is most likely a result of those exchanges, those ones that he'd had. So to be sure, uh, having once been steeped in Judaism himself, he knows the issues that are on their minds. He demonstrates this by reaching back in chapter 10 here to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we looked at that last week. We'll look at that some this week to show that it's not about man somehow reaching up to God. Remember, we looked at that and the fact that God has already done that. Uh, he, he, <laughs> It's not about man reaching up to God to bring Christ down. God sent his only begotten son. He goes on to say that it's also not about going down into the abyss and bringing Christ up from the dead. We looked at that as well last week. Again, that's already been handled. It's not a matter of our work. It's not a matter of our effort. It's, it's, it's in simply coming to believe the fact that God accomplished that as well as the other. He brought Christ down. He raised Christ up. He says, now salvation is simple. Believe. Come to faith. We'll look at that more as we go along. In other words, in man's attempt to acquire righteousness, which the Jew, in Western culture, we don't understand righteousness that much. What it means is right living or being rightly related to God. I need to have righteousness to go to heaven. <laughs> so do you. The big deal with the Jews was they figured that they would manufacture their own. So they had all the lists and all the, the, the laws that they were compelling uh, men to, to keep. He, he, he told the Jews when he, Jesus told the Jews when he got into their face, there in Matthew 24, he said, you go about on land and see for one proselyte, one convert to Judaism. And when you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Why? Because you're compelling them to live by this artificial righteousness and salvation won't be found there. So uh, the Jews, they, they just couldn't get that in their heads. They were adamantly opposed to the gospel that Jesus brought also to that which Paul spoke. Uh, Paul's point in all of this is salvation has never been, nor will it ever be, a transaction that occurs externally. It's not something that's outside of us that we need to pursue, that we need to chase down, that we need to lay hold of. 
Let's pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 10 here. He says, in verse 8, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now, we looked at verses 8 and 9 last week, but in order to catch the context, we're going to continue from these two verses this morning. He says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that's better translated, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation, being saved, is an internal transaction. It's not outside of men, it's inside, it's in our hearts. That's the point he's making here. Uh, and, and it was a very foreign concept, again, to the Jews. Everything they did, if you, as a matter of fact, if you look at the entire Old Testament, it's externals. It's big pictures. God paints with a big brush in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he takes all of that and puts it into man's heart. I mean, you look at the, the types, at, at the ways that God demonstrated himself in the Old Testament. You have Israel in Egypt, Egypt being a type for the world. He redeems them out of Egypt. They come out, they're delivered. They get into the land, or they get into the wilderness, actually, between Egypt and the land that, that God had promised them, and they get stuck. I've seen a lot of Christians get stuck coming out of Egypt, coming out of the world, and yet not fully apprehending the promises of God in their lives. See, it's an external that points to something internal with us. He wants for us to come out of the world, to come fully into Christ. How does that happen? It comes by faith. It's an internal transaction. Again, foreign to the Jew. So he says the word of faith here uh, in verse 8, uh, it's, it, what it's referring to is the entirety of the gospel message. Uh, the, he says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. He's talking about the gospel. And so it, there are two questions which stem from verse 8, which we can see in verse 9 that there, there are questions that are implied here. The first is this person who has had the gospel preached to him, is he willing to confess Jesus as Lord personally before men? The second, is he persuaded in his own heart that the risen Jesus, the risen Christ, is truly the Messiah? Those are pivotal questions. Remember, the word Messiah means anointed one or sent one. He's saying, they don't, you don't need to go find him. The Messiah was sent. So in verse 9, he says, confess with your mouth. The Lord Jesus is, in, in verse 9, he says that. And, and it's better rendered, confess Jesus as Lord, as I mentioned. So what he's talking about here is not a formula. And we're going to talk about formulas in a minute. He's talking about the fact that when you confess, the word confess means to agree with. It means that you're coming to a place of you're agreeing with God that Jesus is Lord. Now, what does Lord mean? What it means is not, a, it's not, it, it, yes, it's, it's a title, and that is his title, the Lord Jesus. And yet what it's implying, again, is that there's a depth to the relationship. It's not just a bumper sticker, guys. Jesus is Lord in my life. Can I say that? Absolutely, I can. Have I got it all wired? No, but he's my Lord. He is the one that directs the course of my life. And that's what he's indicating here. It's more than just a simple mental ascent. Oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. 
He's talking about full-blown commitment to Christ. Now, when he says that, he says, confess Jesus as Lord. It's a loaded confession. If you think about it, he's talking to Gentiles. He's writing to the church at Rome, a Gentile church, but he's also talking to Jews. So no Jew would do this. They wouldn't confess Jesus as Lord because one of the words that they used for God in Judaism was the word kurios. And that's the word Lord here, the Greek word translated Lord. They're not going to do that unless they had truly converted to Christ to call Jesus Lord. No Gentile would do this because the Roman emperors themselves demanded worship from the people and they used the word kurios as well. So what he's saying is you need to be in a place where you recognize Jesus as Lord in your life. These people knew, both Jew and Gentile, that meant turning their back on what they had previously known, who they had previously followed. And that was a big deal. Verse 10, he says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness... And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Notice in verse 9, he says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now, in verse 10, and and that's he's quoting Deuteronomy 30.14, and that's the order that is listed in Deuteronomy. There's no big deal. In verse 10, he says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. He changes it up. And I'm going to give you the deep intellectual Very spiritual meaning for that. Doesn't matter. (laughs) There's not some spiritualized mystical meaning here. And I've heard, you know, I read a lot of stuff and there are people that go, ooh, you know, this is a big deal. No, it's not. No, it's, it's really not. (laughs) The point in all of this is you cannot reduce the things of God. The order of these two statements, you cannot make that into a formula. I've been involved in groups before. It's like you got a guy sitting in the chair. You're going, go ahead, come, come on, confess Jesus as, come on, confess it, confess it. Let's do some positive confessing here and all of that. And, and no, because we're talking about heart issues. It truly is a heart issue. And you cannot reduce the things of God to a formula. Over and over again, Jesus resisted that because formulas tend to produce faith in formulas. <laughs> They take somebody's focus off of the Lord. Uh, They can tend toward us wanting to get God to do our bidding. There's a lot of that going on out there, guys. Faith in formulas is one of the earmarks of false teachers. It's a ploy. And there's there's a truckload of it out there. They appeal to our flesh. They appeal to the natural man. Have you ever seen something on television? The guy says, if you sow a seed into my ministry, then God fill in the blank, will multiply blessings, but he'll do this. If then, that's a formula. (laughs) It's totally a formula. And it's, it's, and what it, what it's attempting to do is somehow obligate God with my formula. And I'll tell you what, God will not be tamed by any man. Period. He is way above that. He's transcending all of our efforts to, to put these kind of things on people. Uh, think about it. Here's a formula from John chapter 6. I want to give you an, a, a couple of examples here. Uh, here's the formula, okay? We show up. Jesus does this basket thing with some bread and some fish. All 5,000 of us eat until we're totally stuffed. There's the formula. Jesus sent them home. <laughs> he said, go home. You got it wrong. They wanted to make him king. 
take him off to Jerusalem and sell him as king, have him throw off Rome, and they'd be happy people because their bellies were full. So they follow him around the Sea of Galilee from where he was. Uh, the next day, he's in Capernaum on the northern shore of the sea there, and, and he's teaching the people, and they follow him, and they show up. So here's the formula. We show up. Jesus does this basket thing with some bread and some fish, and we eat until we're stuffed. That's what they thought. They were trying to put Jesus in a box. They were trying to reduce what he was doing to some nifty formula. And in John 6, 26, Jesus answers them and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, that's important, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He's telling them that they had completely missed the point. Uh, By sustaining them physically, the sign, that was the sign, uh, let me miraculously give you food. Let me do this basket thing with my guys. And, And, you know, they had enough leftovers to pick up 12 baskets and all that. He's showing them, he's demonstrating a greater reality. And that reality is, is that he is the Christ. That he is the one, the sent one, the anointed one. That he's the bread from heaven. He's saying, look, it's not about you being sustained physically. It's about me being the bread of life, the bread from heaven. I am here to sustain you physically. I am here to give you life huge difference. They wanted to reduce his work to a formula. Here's another thing, (laughs) just before we move on here in Romans, I was thinking about this. Let me ask you a question. Do you know why Jesus never healed somebody in the same way twice? Because he knows our predisposition towards, we want to package that thing. We want to distill it down and we want to have a bulleted list of how we're going to go about it. And he knows our tendency to, that, to reduce the things of God to a nifty little formula. And if we did that, we'd probably have a denomination called the Holy Hem Grabbers <laughs> or, or the First Church of the Mud Spitting Pool Washers. You know, he, he always did it differently because he doesn't want us to take that and to package it. I spent 40 some years in the advertising business. I know what it is to package things. I know what it is to make it look good. He doesn't do that. So I don't have bumper stickers on my car either. But the point is, he resists that. So here's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10. He's not giving us a formula that we can go now by rote and recite this thing because it goes way deeper than that. He's saying what I really need to do is to believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Let me ask you a question, gang. Do you truly believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? In the Truth Project, one of the things that the guy said in the very first uh, uh, study that we had was, do I really believe that what I believe is really real? And, and it's kind of a tongue twister, but I've thought about that. I mean, I've woken up in the morning thinking, do I really believe that what I, well, I'm sleepy. I need coffee. But the point is, is that do I really believe this stuff? Am I taking to heart God's word? Do I believe that he raised Jesus from the dead? Now, when he talks about this, he's really, this, it relates to the, his death on the cross, his substitutionary death, when he atoned for my sin that he was buried, that he was three days in the tomb, and that being resurrected, that that was a testimony. That was a sign. 
pointing to the fact that he is the promised Messiah. Also, I mean, there's much more going on in the resurrection, and yet we're going to narrow it to that particular application for the purpose we have this morning. The people missed the signs in John 6 and went with their formula instead. Jesus himself made reference to his resurrection when he spoke of the sign of Jonah. Uh, there in Matthew 28, I'll just paraphrase uh, most of it. The, the religious leaders had been taking him on and they loved asking him questions or making demands of him, not because they cared, but because they were always trying to find a way to trip them, trip him up. They wanted to discredit him. They wanted to get him out of the way. So they come up to him one day and they say, tell us, Rabbi, show us a sign. In other words, prove it. Jesus says, this wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign and none shall be given it except the sign of Jonah. He says, as Jonah in Matthew 20, he says, Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights. So the son of man will be in the heart of the earth. So he says, you want a sign? I'll show you a sign, but you're probably not going to see it. They had not come to faith. We're going to look at that as we go here, because truly, if you want to understand, if you want to comprehend the things of God, you've got to come to faith first. You've got to believe the message. We're going to talk about Isaiah 53, where he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's what he says further down here. Who's believed our reports? So having believed, as we look at this, that that is what he's talking about here, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having believed, we see that confession is also a big deal in God's economy. What do you mean? And what I don't mean is what a lot of hyper-faith, weird teaching out there talks about, you know, making confession and bringing things into existence, and I don't want to go there. At any rate, what he's talking about is what happens in a person's heart. When I truly understand the message, when I truly understand the nature of the gospel, when I truly have embraced that in my heart, guess what? It's going to come out. It can't not. You know, God forbid that I not be able to speak the word of Christ. <laughs> you have to do it. So God's word also has some very strong things to say about confession. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaking here, he says uh, in verses 32 and 33, for you note takers, uh, he says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Very strong, very straightforward. Here's another in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Jesus had been revealing himself to these people. Many of the priests now were coming to faith. However, it says in verse 42 of John chapter 12, nevertheless, even among the rulers, that's the, the, the religious leaders, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogues. That means excommunicated. It doesn't mean they're told to go home. It means that they are totally excommunicated from Israel. It says, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Interesting. I pray, folks, I pray for boldness in my witness. 
I know that my life is secure in him. I know that I, I, there's no issue there. I don't walk around under a cloud of fear. And yet I want my life to count for Christ. I want my witness to be bold. I want to open my mouth because I believe it. I confess it. And Jesus called people publicly. The point here is the day may come where our confession may come with a price. And that may not be far off. And I look at the things that are going on. We have an evil federal government in place. I'm not here to politicize the pulpit. You guys know how I feel about that. However, I would not be doing my job as an under shepherd if I didn't say, hey, look, you got to understand the stakes are high. They're higher than they've ever been in the United States of America. And there may be a cost to your confession. Make the decision now how you'll respond then and you'll do well. Verse 11, he says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's good news. If you're looking down the the, the fact that that persecution could very easily break out, it it has been a way of life for Christians for centuries, decades and centuries in different parts of the world. We are so blessed. We are so soft here in this nation in the West that we don't even really look at it. We kind of look at it like, well, yeah, that's kind of something that's abstract. It's out there. Folks, I want to invite you, take it to heart. Christianity by its design is hard. Oh, it's blessed. Don't get me wrong, but it's hard. Standing up for Christ has been easy in our country because, you know, I used to think that if somebody yelled at me, I was being persecuted. <laughs> I remember my brother just getting in my face right after I got saved. This was many years ago. And, and he, we were at a family function. And he just unloaded on me. And I, I went away kind of whimpering and all pouty and stuff. It's like, Grud, I guess I'm being persecuted for you. <laughs> that wasn't persecution. That was my brother being my brother. Because <laughs> he's kind of like that. But my point is, The days are coming where there could be a significant cost to our confession of Christ. When he says in verse 11, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, Here the apostle, what he's doing is he's doing some some spiritual or some scriptural wordplay. He links the point he's making here. Remember in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, he talks about the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. That the Jews tripped over Christ. He's linking that now. He's talking about Christ being the stumbling stone at the end of chapter 9. And here in Isaiah, if you read the whole verse in Isaiah 28, which is what he's referencing here, 28.16 in Isaiah, he says, Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. It's not just a foundation, it's a sure foundation whosoever, there's that word again, I love seeing that, whoever believes will not act hastily. He's saying to unbelieving Israel, this Jesus, who's the stumbling stone that you've tripped over, he's actually the long-awaited foundation stone for Israel that Israel has been hoping for. The people in Israel had set their hopes on Messiah that he would be the foundation stone, that there would be something that God would do. But they didn't like that it was this guy. They had a real problem with it. And Paul's essentially saying, look, the stumbling stone, no, he's not a stumbling stone at all. He's a foundation for everything you believe. Not only that, but he's brought salvation near. 
as we talked about last week. And he's made it so simple that anyone, whosoever, who believes on him may obtain it. Not complicated. He's made it very easy. He's brought it very near. And the promise of salvation is extended to all. All the way out to the end of the age. You know, as I did a little bit of word searching as I was preparing for this morning at the word whoever or whosoever. King James is whosoever. New King James, whoever. I like whosoever just because it's cool sounding. But the point is, is it is whoever. And in, at the end of the Bible, at the very last chapter, and we have it on our wall here in the morning when you walk in and you see the dove and it says Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. That's because that's our heart. We want to see people come. We want to see people, see people grow. We want to see them go deeper in their relationship with Christ. And the whole verse in Revelation twenty-two seventeen is, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who, him who thirsts, come. Whosoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's not just God's heart for Israel. It's God's heart for us. Come, take of the water of life. It's free. Jesus made it free when he hung on that cross. So here's Paul's point. Salvation is available to everybody, whosoever believes. Now, I want to look at that for a minute. The word believes, the, word, the Greek word is pistuo. The word for faith is pistis. They have the same root, okay? All right. What pistuo means is to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Have you ever thought about that? In the, in the book of James, James, Jesus's brother, when he wrote, uh, he, he said the demons believe in God and they tremble. It's not that kind of faith. I, I actually looked at it and they did the a word search. I'm not going to go into it. But no, he's not talking about that. He's saying whosoever trusts, he is the one who will be saved. Whoever trusts to the point of Jesus becoming Lord in their lives is the one. I trust in my heart. I confess with my mouth because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what he says in Luke chapter six. What's in my heart is betrayed by what comes out of my mouth. That's why it's not a, a formula there earlier as we looked at it. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, or believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. It all goes to the heart. Because out of that, the abundance of my heart, my confession will come. Paul knew that for these people, that confession wasn't coming for the unbelieving Jews. And he's essentially letting them know, this is the transaction that needs to take place in your life for you to come. It's the same transaction that needs to take place in our lives if we're going to have a serious relationship with Christ. Verse 12, he says, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. I love that word. He's rich to all that call upon him. God saves all Jews and all Gentiles the same way is what the point he's making. It is not a distinction. There's not a division there anymore. I love that. I I mention it often because it's just such a great picture. In in Ephesians 2, Paul says the wall of separation has been taken down. It's taken out of the way. And what he's referring to is there on the Temple Mount, you could go into the court of the Gentiles. You could only go so far before this waist-high wall. You'd come up to that. And if you weren't a Jew, you could not go further 
under threat of death. He says, no, that's gone. That's taken out of the way. It's equal approach to God. It's equal access to God. He's rich to all that would call upon him. So the Jews now, he's saying that salvation is the same way for the Jews. However, the Jews still are a unique people. Uh, and they still have a unique place in God's plan uh, for mankind, especially at the end of the age, in the end times. And we're going to look at that next week. Uh, it's great stuff in chapter 11. What he's saying here, though, is salvation is available to all. There's no distinction. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're a Gentile, which is anybody that's not a Jew, is available. There's access to God. The key word is to all who call upon him. Now, remember in chapter 9, we looked at predestiny and, and we looked at election. What he's saying here is to call upon him. That's an act of human will. Because there's God's part. He holds salvation out there. He says, look, here's this rich platter that has more than you could ever consume for eternity. You have to reach out and take it. That's man's part. So there's God's part. Man's part is to call upon him. It's an act of our will. Verse 13, he says, For whoever, there's that word again, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he repeats himself twice in this one little verse. In verse 13 here, he talks about whoever, whosoever. He's saying salvation is available to anyone and to everybody. We also see that God is rich towards anyone that calls on him. Now, the word calls can also be rendered appeals. So what he's saying here is, I hear the gospel, I believe the gospel, I confess what I believe, I call upon him, I appeal to him for salvation. For some, yeah, I remember one of my dearest friends is the senior pastor at the church. He and I spent about 20 years together as associate pastors in California. Um, He said, yeah, I was going to college and I just went to a Bible study one day and I liked it. Pretty soon I realized I, I, I got saved somewhere in there. <laughs> for others, like for me, we would talk about it and laugh because I'd tell him, I'm a, I'm a lot harder, harder headed than you are, Brad. It took my daughter getting bounced 60 miles an hour, thrown from, ejected from a vehicle 60 miles an hour, going down a state highway and not having a scratch. I mean, you know, I, I think there's probably something to this God stuff. I really need to get serious here. So, Regardless, it's about calling upon him. Some, it's it's something that's very simple. And your mileage may vary. You may just simply call upon him in the quiet of your own heart. I've been in places and I've been with people who are desperately crying out for him. Because they have nowhere else to turn. They have nowhere else to go. They have no answers. God, I don't just want you. I need you is what I've seen in that instance. The result is the same. He's rich to those that call upon him. Verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? (laughs) I love this passage. Paul understood the Jews had a huge problem with him. As I mentioned, they didn't like the fact that he's traveling all over the empire and he's going into one synagogue after another. And, and, and preaching this thing that they didn't like, that they rejected. They didn't like Jesus as Messiah. They didn't like this salvation by grace through faith thing. 
They also hadn't sanctioned it. And they were so stuck in their stuff, they figured that they had to be the ones that sanctioned whatever takes place. I love that the New Testament, they came to Paul one time and they said, hey, those guys out there, they're preaching the gospel and they didn't come from us. And Paul said, you know what? Whether it's from uh, from godly aspiration or selfish ambition, I don't really care. I rejoice that Christ is preached. You don't have to be a member of my club. You have to be a member of his. What he's saying here is the salvation, <laughs> and I'm going to run through this. Uh, <clears throat> I have to read it because it's, there's a logical sequence here that Paul is using. And I, I, I just see, and I want to invite you, Understand the brilliance in this man's mind. Yes, the Holy Spirit is on him. He's writing inspired words. And uh, this is very Pauline. What he's saying is if salvation were to come to those who call upon the name of the Lord, calling is impossible to the one who has not believed on the Lord. Can't happen. Believing is impossible to the one who has not heard the message about the Lord. Hearing is impossible unless someone comes preaching the message and preaching preaching is impossible except the messenger is divinely sent. He's saying, if you have a beef with me, <laughs> you don't have a beef with me. You have a beef with God. He sent me all I'm doing. What he's saying here in these verses is all I'm doing is what God has called me to do. God forbid that I not preach the gospel of Christ. Take it up with him. If you have a problem with the messenger, and you have a problem with the message, you better see who sent me. I'm simply doing God's work. And, and Paul, and now in verse 15, the end of verse 15, let's go to the end of that, the second half, he backs it up with what he's been saying. He backs that up with the word of God. He, there he quotes, uh, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, who bring glad tidings of good things. So what's he saying here? Is he talking about feet? <laughs> beautiful feet? I have, I gotta tell you guys, I have anything but beautiful feet. My wife is smiling back there because she would totally agree with that statement. <laughs> she doesn't think I have very nice looking feet. Especially like in the summertime, you know, it's like you walk around with flip flops on or sandals on, you know, your feet are all cracked and they get all black on the bottom, can't scrub it off. He's not talking about that. What he's saying, when you, some of you guys are grimacing. <laughs> I could have gone. I could have gone further. <laughs> what he's saying is this: the most beautiful way that a person can use their feet, ugly as they may be, is to carry the message of the gospel. He's saying, "Look, Jews, you are on me about my work. I'm traveling around and I am spreading this message." And I'm telling you, if you've got a problem with me, you've got a problem with him. Because my feet are doing the work that God has called me to do. Notice, too, that he speaks of the gospel as bringing glad tidings of good things. And now that's a reference to Isaiah 52, when Isaiah is prophesying of God's people being freed from their captivity. Remember now, Isaiah was, he was a prophet sort of to both parts of the nation. But God's people had been or would be carted off to captivity. And he's prophesying ahead of time, look, you won't be there. God will bring you back. And when he brings you back, how beautiful are the feet of him who, he says in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, 
who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, I also want to make a point here too. Now, and I want you to understand this. There's a place where we warn people of the wrath of God. There's a place where we warn people of coming judgment. That's the bad news. He's talking about the gospel here, and that literally translates good news. His emphasis is, as Isaiah's was, as ours should be, the good news, the gospel of Christ. He speaks of the gospel of peace. What is he talking about? He's talking about we are hostile towards God until such a point as we embrace the finished work of Christ. And that hostility is taken out of the way. God is no longer hostile towards us. And we have peace, peace with God. Paul goes on in Philippians and he talks about the peace of God, that peace that can rule in our hearts even when we're going through it. When we have tough circumstances in our lives, when we have questions and no answers, when perhaps we've gotten that phone call or we've been to the doctors or whatever it is, you can go through really tough stuff and still have the peace of God. However, you can't have the peace of God unless first you have peace with God. And that's the nature of the gospel is to establish peace between man and God and God and man. I guess my point in that is it's probably not a good idea to lead off to go up to somebody you want to share the gospel with and tell them to turn or burn. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really the best way, the best approach. I've never used that. I mean, there's a time, like I said, where we share that there are eternal consequences for people. But folks, the good news is they don't have to experience them. And that's where we center. Verse 16, he says, but they've not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? No, he's not saying all have not obeyed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying not all have obeyed. So he's saying that there are some, there's a mix here. His reference here is to Isaiah 53. Uh, and that along with Daniel chapter 9 are probably the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy, the most important prophecies that we quote from all the time. Uh, in Isaiah 53, the life, the person, and the work of Christ. Part of how I came to the Lord on a camping trip. I read the book of Exodus. I read the gospel of Matthew. And I saw a footnote somewhere that referred me back to this. And I read Isaiah 53, and there was a footnote there that said it was 740 years before Christ. And I was like, really? This, I mean, it is so beautifully portrays who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And Paul goes back here and he's saying, look, it starts out with who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When he talks about this, Even here in Isaiah 53, the very first verse proclaims that when Messiah comes, not all would believe. The point he's making is Israel, not all of you will believe. He's saying that even their unbelief is a fulfillment of prophecy. God spoke it hundreds of years before. And here he is quoting it to these people, becoming part of the scripture that we use in the New Testament, that not all will come to faith. So, The question then becomes, what does it look like to not obey the gospel? So if the gospel is, I hear and believe, I hear and I respond, I hear and allow the seeds of the gospel to take root in my heart. Think about the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow the seeds. The sower being the son of man, the seed being the word of God. 
and the four conditions of the human heart there in Luke chapter 8. To not obey the gospel is to hear and not believe. It's to hear and not respond. It's to hear and not allow those seeds to go deep, take root in my heart. He talks about there in Luke chapter 8 that the birds of the air, uh, Satan steals the seed. He talks about the cares of the world choke the seed. There's only one of the four that he quotes there that actually takes root in a person's heart, and that is saving faith. It results in the committing to Jesus as Lord in my life. But he's saying that not all have, not all will. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says that there's a veil that lies over Israel's heart. We'll talk about that next week. But his point is that that veil is not removed until someone comes to Christ. And then the veil is lifted. Verse 17, he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's a verse that many of us know well, rightfully so, because that's the simplicity that he's talking about when he's talking about salvation being very simple and being very near. It's a heart transaction. It comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Interesting, when Paul traveled from city to city, went to the synagogues, uh, we're told he reasoned from the scriptures. That's what he's doing here. In, in Romans 10, he is reasoning from the scriptures. He's bringing one out after another, after another. He's saying, chew on this, guys. This is from your Bible. He's quoting the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And you need to understand this. He's reasoning from the scriptures. If your faith is based upon anything or anyone else, you're going to end up with a misguided, stunted faith. Not all faith is saving faith, folks. There is a lot of garbage out there. There is a lot of false witness, a lot of false testimony. There is a, 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 there, I grew up in a false religion and I thought I was there. It's got to be based on the word of God. Check me out. I welcome it. I remember the first Sunday when we had uh, George Fox students coming in this year, uh, one of the students came up to me afterwards and he wanted to know. And, and I just looked at him and he's saying, yeah, I hope I'm not offending you. I said, no, man, I love this. He wanted to understand where we stood as relates to the word of God. He wanted to understand where we stood doctrinally, where, whether we were adhering to the the doctrines of historic Orthodox Christianity, which we do, or if we were off on some weird tangent. And I told him, I said, you know what? I love, I love that you're asking these questions because you're not taking my word for it. You want to know where we stand when it comes to this. That's why Paul reasoned from the scriptures whenever he wrote, whenever he went somewhere, that was his habit. That's what he did. He didn't go about giving people his opinions. He went about giving people the word of God and he said, do with it as you will. Some will come, some will not. Be sure to check it out. Make sure that you're hearing what you're hearing is backed up by the word of God. And you know, truth be known, misguided faith, it's actually pretty common. Turn on the television I don't even want to go there. <laughs> My mind immediately went to this big stadium in Houston. I just don't want to go there. I, I will I will rabbit trail and we won't go any further this morning. But there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of spiritual junk food. It might feel good for the moment, but it will benefit you nothing. It will actually be de- detrimental to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, 
Paul draws a contrast between those who adhere to this principle and those who did not. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, For we are not as so many, and that means many to the most part, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, he speaks of people here, of people who peddle the word of God. Now, the Greek word there, it's a term that's referring to engaging in business with a strong implication on deceptiveness or greedy motives to peddle for profit. What he's talking about here, and it literally translates, we are not hucksters of the word of God. There are hucksters out there. Careful, folks. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Verse 18, he says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, there's the sound. their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Once again, Paul draws from the, the Psalms to illustrate that even King David understood that God's revelation of himself had gone out to the entire earth and not just to the Jews only, letting them know far before they really had much to do with anything. God was prophesying that this salvation, this gospel would go to the ends of the earth. So the question then becomes, why had they not taken hold of Christ? Why not? Yeah, as I mentioned, Second Corinthians talks about the veil over their hearts, but that could be lifted because it says there that it's lifted when someone is in Christ. It's lifted with Christ. I, I really think that the, we find the answer in Hebrews chapter 4. There's a, a very telling passage there. It talks about Israel. And, and, and in Hebrews 4, the writer, maybe it was Paul, <laughs> he's speaking of Israel's rebellion. And when they rebelled in the wilderness, remember they had come out of Egypt and they had made the trip. They're, they're right at the border of the land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and all of that, and 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 they balked. They sent the spies in, and the spies came back, started out with a good report, and kind of went, maybe not so much, not that great of a report. And and Israel, they lifted up their voices and wept. They said, oh, there's giants in the land. They're too big. They're, we were like locusts in their sight, and all of that. And God was going to destroy the nation right then, right there, and Moses hit the ground interceded and said, don't, please spare them. God did. However, they didn't go in. Hebrews 4, verse 2, we read, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Good news, you get to go into the land. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Here's the point. The word of God is only profitable when it is applied by faith. Uh, I remember an old bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's really the attitude that we need to have as we approach the word of God. It wasn't profitable for Israel. God had told them, he promised them. He said, I'll take you in, I will do the work, you just show up. And they said, no. So the word that they heard hadn't profited them because they ended up wandering around the desert for 40 more years. Everybody in that generation from the age 20 up died and their kids would go in, but they wouldn't because God's word had not profited them because they didn't believe it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Verse 19, he says, but I say, did Israel not know? 
For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Now, with the Gentiles, after Israel rejected Messiah, God gave the gospel to the Gentiles. He's saying here, I did that to provoke you to jealousy. Talk about that a little bit more next week. But he's saying, look, that was the plan. Your rejection of the gospel, at least by a majority of the Jews, it shouldn't have come as a surprise to Israel. Their scriptures foretold exactly what would happen. He'd warned that he would provoke Israel to jealousy by a, by a non-nation. Who's that? It's the Gentiles. And anger Israel by a foolish, idolatrous nation. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold. He, he strengthens his argument now, which is, um, he, he's putting the hammer down with these people because of their rejection of Christ. He says, but Isaiah is very bold and says in verse 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. With even bolder language, Paul quotes the Lord in Isaiah 65 as being found by the Gentiles, even though they weren't really looking for him, being made manifest to those who weren't inquiring of him. He's saying, look, you're having to work at this, Israel, at willfully, stubbornly stumbling over Christ, rejecting me, while at the same time the Gentiles, they just stumble right on in. (laughs) They're just not even thinking about it, and they're coming to Christ in droves. The gospel at this time was exploding over the empire. It was exploding over the known world. And and it was going, yes, the, the early church, it was primarily Jewish people that had converted to Christianity, but now it's gone out to the Gentiles and they're coming. You say, you know what? You've made this hard on yourself. That's his whole point here. Your rejection is making it hard on yourself. That you don't have to come to me on the basis of law, keeping your puny rules, because Jesus perfected the law. He was, he was the fulfillment of the law, like we looked at last week. That you don't have to do that doesn't mean that salvation is now somehow hard. It's easier than it's ever been. It's free. There is no cost, zero cost to you. All you have to do is believe in your heart. And, and confess with your mouth. That's his point in all of this. So what would the result of their rejection be? Unbelieving Israel would be held fully accountable for their willful ignorance. They, they were sticking their fingers in their ears and going, ah, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. Even though they had convincing proofs throughout God's word, God would hold them accountable for their rejection of Messiah. And yet, I love that Paul ends this in verse 21. He says, but to Israel, he says, all day long, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God's heart clearly seen here. His heart for his people, his chosen people, still chosen, even though they rejected. God's heart is seen for Israel. It's against the the backdrop of the gospel having been extended to the Gentiles And Israel responding with no. The Gentiles responding with yes, unashamedly uh, allowing Jesus to come in to become Lord in their lives. Isaiah portrays the Lord here. I love the word picture in this. He, He portrays the Lord standing there all day long with his hands outstretched, beckoning hands, 
towards Israel, being met with their disobedience and their stubborn stubborn refusal. That didn't change his posture towards them, nor does it change his posture towards us. If we want to live our lives in stubborn unbelief, he'll let us. It's willful, but he loves us. His hand is outstretched to any who will call on his name. Not my opinion. It's what God's word tells us here. As we do that, he takes that and he pours it on in our lives. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud and they were stuck in their pride. We don't want your way. We don't like your guy. We are not going to take it. We just reject all of that. And God resisted them. But he says, you know, when you're humble enough to realize that you can't reach heaven yourself, that you need a savior, you need a Messiah. You need someone who's demonstrated to you as having been raised from the dead. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one that wore your sin at Calvary. Let me tell you about the one that rose from the dead so that he could give you power to live. That's the promise of the new covenant, folks. Those are promises directly to you and I. And we simply reach out by faith and appropriate them in our lives. We apply those things to our lives and our lives are enriched. Let's pray. Father, (laughs) I'm just so thankful for your word, your divinely inspired word. And I pray, Father, for each one here, each one perhaps online, each one within the sound of my voice, that you would stir us up to love and good works. Those of us that know you, if there are any that don't know you here or out there, I pray, Father, that they would pray that simple prayer, knowing that they've lived their life away from you and now want to experience this, which we have been speaking of this morning. I pray, Father, they would turn from the old life, ask you to forgive them for their sins, and that you would fill them. I pray for each one, Lord. I pray for those perhaps who have been walking away from you, believing, yes, but perhaps living a life that, that they know is not the life you've called us to. I pray for a, a spirit of renewal and refreshing. I pray for a spirit of repentance if there's sin involved. I pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on each one. Thank you, Lord, again, for your word. Thank you for this morning. We pray your hand upon us as we leave this place today and that you would continue to speak to us. You'd bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at here. We commit it to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.